Thanks for listening tonight. If you'd like to listen ad-free and get access to exclusive bonus episodes, then check out the Sleepy Bookshelf premium feed in the show notes. Good evening, and welcome to the Sleepy Bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm Elizabeth, your host. This evening we'll be continuing with Journey to the Center of the Earth. But before we do that, let's take some time to settle in for the night. Focus on relaxing your muscles, scanning yourself from your toes to the top of your head and giving each part of your body permission to let go. Sink into your bed and take a deep breath through your nose. Now exhale slowly through your mouth, maybe sighing as you do so. Lovely. Last time we were together, the professor and Harry began their journey to Iceland. Harry had been reluctant, but with his fiancée, Gretchen's enthusiastic consent, he conceded. They travelled first to Denmark by train, and from there they arranged passage to Iceland on board a schooner. While in Copenhagen, Professor Hardwick encouraged Harry to face his fear of heights in preparation for the volcano by climbing the steeple of a local church every day until he was confident he was no longer afraid. Once on board the schooner, they sailed for over a week through the Shetlands and eventually landed on the coast of Reykjavik. The town was small, with only two main streets to explore. They were met and greeted warmly by local officials who were happy to accommodate their every need. They were to stay with a local academic named M. Fredriksson, who predominantly spoke Icelandic, but also Latin, and could converse well with Harry in the latter. And that's where we pick back up tonight, with Harry and Professor Hardwig at M. Fredriksson's house, beginning to plan their next steps. So lie back and listen to the sound of my voice as I turn to the next pages of Journey to the Center of the Earth. Chapter 7 Conversation and Discovery When I returned, dinner was ready. This meal was devoured by my worthy relative with affidity and veracity. His shipboard diet had turned his interior 
into a perfect gulf. The repast, which was more Danish than Icelandic, was in itself nothing, but the excessive hospitality of our host made us enjoy it doubly. The conversation turned upon scientific matters, and M. Fredrickson asked my uncle what he thought of the public library. Library, sir, replied my uncle. It appears to me a collection of useless old volumes and a beggarly amount of empty shelves. What? said M. Fredrickson. Why, we have 8,000 volumes of most rare and valuable works, some in the Scandinavian language, besides all the new publications from Copenhagen. Eight thousand volumes, my dear sir. Why, where are they? Asked my uncle. Scattered over the country, Professor Hardwig, he answered. We are very studious, my dear sir, though we do live in Iceland. Every farmer, every laborer, every fisherman can both read and write, and we think that books instead of being locked up in cupboards far from the sight of students, should be distributed as widely as possible. The books of our library are therefore passed from hand to hand without returning to the library shelves, perhaps for years. Then when foreigners visit you, there is nothing for them to see? My uncle inquired. Well, sir, foreigners have their own libraries, and our first consideration is that our own people should be highly educated, he responded. Fortunately, the love of study is innate in the Icelandic people. In 1816, we founded a literary society and mechanics institute, Many foreign scholars of eminence are honorary members. We publish books destined to educate our people, and these books have rendered valuable services to our country. Allow me to have the honor, Professor Hardwick, to enroll you as an honorary member. My uncle, who already belonged to nearly every literary and scientific institution in Europe immediately yielded to the amiable wishes of good M. Fredrickson. And now, he said, after many expressions of gratitude and goodwill, if you will tell me what books you expected to find, perhaps I may be of some assistance to you. I watched my uncle keenly, for a minute or two, he hesitated, as if unwilling to speak. To speak openly was perhaps to unveil his projects. Nevertheless, after some reflection, he made up his mind. Well, M. Fredrickson, he said in an easy, unconcerned kind of way, I was desirous of ascertaining if among other valuable works, 
you had any of the learned Anna Saknusum. Anna Saknusum, said the professor of Reykjavik. You speak of one of the most distinguished scholars of the 16th century, of the great naturalist, the alchemist, the great traveler. Exactly so, my uncle replied. One of the most distinguished men connected with Icelandic science and literature, said M. Fredrickson. As you say, sir. My uncle nodded. A man illustrious above all, the professor of Reykjavik replied. Yes, sir, all this is true. But his works? My uncle pushed on. M. Fredrickson shook his head. We have none of them. Not in Iceland? asked my uncle. There are none in Iceland or elsewhere, answered the other sadly. Arna Saknusum was persecuted for heresy, and in 1573, his works were publicly burnt at Copenhagen by the hands of the common hangman. Very good. Hmm. Capital, murmured my uncle to the great astonishment of the worthy Icelander. I see the link in the chain. Everything is explained, and I now understand why Anna Saknusum put out of count, forced to hide his magnificent discoveries, was compelled to conceal beneath the veil of an incomprehensible cryptograph a secret His voice trailed off. What secret? The Icelandic professor inquired. A secret which, stammered my uncle before going silent. Have you discovered some wonderful manuscript? Asked M. Fredrickson with great curiosity. No, no said my uncle. I was carried away by my enthusiasm. A mere supposition. Very good, sir, said the other. But really, to turn to another subject, I hope you will not leave our island without examining its mineralogical riches. Well, the fact is I am rather late, my uncle remarked. So many learned scientists have been here before me. Yes, there is still much to be done, replied M. Fredrickson. You think so? said my uncle, his eyes twinkling with hidden satisfaction. Yes, you have no idea how many unknown mountains, glaciers, and volcanoes there are which remain to be studied, M. Fredrickson continued. Without moving from where we sit, I can show you one. Yonder, on the edge of the horizon, you see Snaefels. Yes, Snaefels, said my uncle. The Icelandic professor nodded. 
one of the most curious volcanoes in existence, the crater of which has been rarely visited. Extinct, Professor Hardwick asked to confirm. Extinct any time these five hundred years, was the ready reply. Well, said my uncle, who dug his nails into his flesh and pressed his knees tightly together to prevent himself leaping up with joy. I have a great mind to begin my studies with an examination of the geological mysteries of this Mount Seifel? Faisal, what do you call it? Snaefuls, my dear sir, the Icelandic professor replied. This portion of the conversation took place in Latin, and I therefore understood all that had been said. I could scarcely keep my countenance when I found my uncle so cunningly concealing his delight and satisfaction. I must confess that his artful grimaces put on to conceal his happiness made him look like a new Mephistopheles. He continued, Your proposition delights me. I will endeavor to climb to the summit of Snaefels, and, if possible, I will descend into its crater. Oh, I very much regret, continued M. Fredrickson, that my occupation will entirely preclude the possibility of my accompanying you. It would have been both pleasurable and profitable if I could have spared the time. No, no, a thousand times no, said my uncle. I do not wish to disturb the serenity of any man. I thank you, however, with all my heart. The presence of one so learned as yourself would no doubt have been most useful, but the duties of your office and profession must come before everything. In the innocence of his kind heart, our host did not perceive the irony of these remarks. I entirely approve your project, continued the Icelander after some further remarks. It is a good idea to begin by examining this volcano. You will make a harvest of curious observations. In the first place, how do you propose to get to Snaefels? I see, said my uncle. I shall cross the bay. Of course, that is the most rapid route. Of course, said the Icelandic professor. But still, it cannot be done. Why? asked my uncle. We have not an available boat in all of Reykjavik replied the other. What is to be done? My uncle followed. You must go by land along the coast, said M. Fredrickson. It is longer, but much more interesting. Then I must have a guide, my uncle remarked. Of course, 
and I have your very man, the other replied. Somebody on whom I can depend, said my uncle. Yes, an inhabitant of the peninsula on which Snaefels is situated, said the other. He is a very shrewd and worthy man with whom you will be pleased. He speaks Danish fluently. When can I see him? asked my uncle. Today? No, tomorrow, said the Icelander. He will not be here before. Tomorrow be it, replied my uncle with a deep sigh. The conversation ended by compliments on both sides. During the dinner, my uncle had learned as much to the history of Arna Saknusum and the reasons for his mysterious and hieroglyphical document. He also became aware that his host would not accompany him on his adventurous expedition and that the next day we should have a guide. Chapter 8 The Eiderdown Hunter Off at Last That evening, I took a brief walk on the shore near Reykjavik, after which I returned to an early sleep on my bed of coarse planks, where I slept the sleep of the just. When I awoke, I heard my uncle speaking loudly in the next room. I rose hastily and joined him. He was talking in Danish with a man of tall stature and of perfectly Herculean build. This man appeared to be possessed of very great strength. His eyes, which started rather prominently from a very sturdy head, the face belonging to which was soft, and kind, appeared very quick and intelligent. Very long hair, which even in England would have been accounted exceedingly red, fell over his athletic shoulders. This man was active and supple in appearance, though he scarcely moved his arms being in fact one of those men who despise the habit of gesticulation common to other people. Everything in this man's manner revealed a calm and phlegmatic temperament. There was nothing indolent about him, but his appearance spoke of tranquility. He was one of those who never seemed to expect anything from anybody who liked to work when he thought proper, and whose philosophy nothing could astonish or trouble. I began to comprehend his character simply from the way in which he listened to the wild and impassaged verbiage of my worthy uncle. While the excellent professor spoke sentence after sentence, he stood with folded arms, utterly still, motionless to all my uncle's gesticulations. When he wanted to say no, 
he moved his head from left to right. When he acquiesced, he nodded so slightly that you could scarcely see the undulation of his head. This economy of motion was carried to the length of avarice. Judging from his appearance, I should have been a long time before I had suspected him to be what he was, a mighty hunter. Certainly, his manner was not likely to frighten the game. How then did he contrive to get at his prey? My surprise was slightly modified when I knew that his tranquil and solemn personage was only a hunter of eider duck, the down which is, after all, the greatest source of the Icelander's wealth. In the early days of summer, the female of the eider, a pretty sort of duck, builds its nest amid the rocks of the fjords. The name given to all narrow gulfs in Scandinavian countries, with which every part of the island is indented. No sooner has her eider duck made her nest than she lines the inside of it with the softest down from her breast. Then comes the hunter or trader taking away the nest. The female begins her task over again, and this continues as long as any eiderdown is to be found. When she can find no more, the male bird sets to work to see what he can do. As, however, his down is not so soft, and he has therefore no commercial value, the hunter does not take the trouble to rob him of his nest lining. The nest is accordingly finished, the eggs are laid, the little ones are born, and next year the harvest of Eiderdown is again collected. Now, as the Eiderduck never selects steep rocks or aspects to build its nest, but rather sloping and low cliffs near to the sea, the Icelandic hunter can carry on his trade operations without much difficulty. He is like a farmer who neither has to plough, to sow, nor to harrow, only to collect his harvest. This grave, sententious, silent person was named Hans Bjelke. He had called upon us in consequence of the recommendation of M. Fridrikson. He was, in fact, our future guide. It struck me that had I sought the world over, I could not have found a greater contradiction to my impulsive uncle. They, however, readily understood one another. Neither of them had any thought about money. One was ready to take all that was offered him, the other ready to offer anything that was asked. 
It may readily be conceived then that an understanding was soon come to between them. Now the understanding was that he was to take us to the village of Stapi, situated on the southern slope of the peninsula of Snaefels, at the very foot of the volcano. Hans, the guide, told us the distance was about 22 miles, a journey which my uncle supposed would take about two days. But when my uncle came to understand that they were Danish miles of 8,000 yards each, he was obliged to be more moderate in his ideas, and considering the horrible roads we had to follow, to allow eight or ten days for the journey. Four horses were prepared for us, two to carry the baggage and two to bear the important weight of myself and uncle. Hans declared that nothing ever would make him climb on the back of any animal. He knew every inch of that part of the coast and promised to take us the very shortest way. His engagement with my uncle was by no means to cease with our arrival at Stappy. He was further to remain in his service during the whole time required for the completion of his scientific investigations at the fixed salary of three rix dollars a week, being exactly fourteen shillings and twopence minus one farthing English currency. One stipulation, however, was made by the guide. The money was to be paid to him every Saturday night, failing which his engagement was at an end. The day of our departure was fixed. My uncle wished to hand the Eiderdown hunter in advance, but he refused in one emphatic word. After. The treaty concluded, our worthy guide retired without another word. A splendid fellow, said my uncle. Only he little suspects the marvelous part he is about to play in the history of the world. You mean then, I said in amazement, that he should accompany us to the interior of the earth? Yes, replied my uncle. Why not? There were yet 48 hours to elapse before we made our final start. To my great regret, our whole time was taken up in making preparations for our journey. All our industry and ability were devoted to packing every object in the most advantageous manner. The instruments on one side, the arms on the other, the tools here, and the provisions there. There were, in fact, four distinct groups. The instruments were, of course, of the best manufacture. One, a centigrade thermometer of Eigel, 
counting up to 150 degrees, which to me did not appear half enough or too much. Too hot by half if the degree of heat was to ascend so high, in which case we should certainly be cooked. Not enough if we wanted to ascertain the exact temperature of springs or metal in a state of fusion. 2. A manometer, worked by compressed air. An instrument used to ascertain the upper atmospheric pressure on the level of the ocean. Perhaps a common barometer would not have done as well, the atmospheric pressure being likely to increase in proportion as we descend below the surface of the Earth. Note, a manometer is an instrument to show the density or rarity of gases. 3. A first-class chronometer made by Boissonnas of Geneva, set at the meridian of Hamburg, from which Germans calculate, as the English do from Greenwich, and the French from Paris. Note, a chronometer is a time measurer or superior watch. 4. Two compasses, one for horizontal guidance, the other to ascertain the dip. 5. A night glass. 6. Two Ruhmkorff coils, which by means of a current of electricity would ensure us a very excellent, easily carried, and certain means of obtaining light. Note, Ruhmkorff's coil is an instrument for producing currents of induced electricity of great intensity. It consists of a coil of copper wire insulated by being covered with silk, surrounded by another coil of fine wire, also insulated, in which a momentary current is induced when a current is passed through the inner coil from a voltaic battery. When the apparatus is in action, the gas becomes luminous and produces a white and continued light. The battery and wire are carried in a leather bag, which the traveler fastens by a strap to his shoulders. The lantern is in front, and enables the benighted wanderer to see in the most profound obscurity. He may venture without fear of explosion into the midst of the most inflammable gases, and the lantern will burn beneath the deepest waters. H. D. Ruhmkorff, an able and learned chemist, discovered the induction coil. In 1864, he won the quinquennial French prize of £2,000 for this ingenious application of electricity. 7. A voltaic battery of the newest principle. Note, a voltaic battery, so-called from Volta, its designer, 
is an apparatus consisting of a series of metal plates arranged in pairs and subjected to the action of saline solutions for producing currents of electricity. Our arms consisted of two rifles with two revolving cis shooters. Why these arms were provided, it was impossible for me to say. I had every reason to believe that we had no wild beasts to fear. My uncle, on the other hand, was quite as devoted to his arsenal as to his collection of instruments. Above all, he was very careful with his provision of fulminating or gun cotton warranted to keep in any climate and of which expansive force was known to be greater than that of ordinary gunpowder. Our tools consisted of two pickaxes, two crowbars, a silken ladder, three iron-shod alpine poles, a hatchet, a hammer, a dozen wedges, some pointed pieces of iron, and a quantity of strong rope. You may conceive that the whole made quite a tolerable parcel, especially when I mentioned the ladder itself was 300 feet long. Then there came the important question of provisions. The hamper was not very large, but tolerably satisfactory for I knew that in concentrated essence of meat and biscuit, there was enough to last six months. The only liquid provided by my uncle was Scheidem gin, not a drop of water. We had, however, an ample supply of gourds, and my uncle counted on finding water and enough to fill them as soon as we commenced our downward journey. My remarks as to the temperature, the quality, and even as to the possibility of none being found, remained wholly without effect. To make up the exact list of our travelling gear for the guidance of future travellers, add that we carried a medicine and surgical chest with all apparatus necessary for wounds, fractures, and blows. Lint, scissors, lancets. In fact, a perfect collection of horrible-looking instruments. A number of vials containing ammonia, alcohol, ether, goulard water, aromatic vinegar. In fact, every possible and impossible drug. Finally, all the materials for working the Ruhmkorff coil. My uncle had also been careful to lay in a goodly supply of tobacco, several flasks of very fine gunpowder, boxes of tinder, besides a large belt crammed full of notes and gold. Good boots rendered watertight, were to be found to the number of six in the toolbox. With such clothing, with such boots, and such general equipment, 
said my uncle in a state of rapturous delight. We may hope to travel far. It took a whole day to put these matters in order. In the evening, we dined with Baron Tramp in company with the mayor of Reykjavik and Dr. Heiltalen, the great medical man of Iceland. M. Fridriksson was not present, and I was afterwards sorry to hear that he and the governor did not agree on some matters connected with the administration of the island. Unfortunately, the consequence was that I did not understand a word that was said at dinner, a kind of semi-official reception. One thing I can say, my uncle never let off speaking. The next day, our labor came to an end. Our worthy host delighted my uncle, Professor Hardwig, by giving him a good map of Iceland, a most important and precious document for a mineralogist. Our last evening was spent in a long conversation with M. Fridriksson, whom I liked very much, the more that I never expected to see him or anyone else again. After this agreeable way of spending an hour or so, I tried to sleep. In vain, with the exception of a few doses, my night was miserable. At five o'clock in the morning, I was awakened from the only real half-hour's sleep of the night by the loud neighing of horses under my window. I hastily dressed myself and went down into the street. Hans was engaged in putting the finishing stroke to our baggage, which he did in a silent, quiet way that won my admiration, and yet he did it admirably well. My uncle wasted a great deal of breath in giving him directions, but worthy hands took not the slightest notice of his words. At six o'clock, all our preparations were completed, and M. Fridriksson shook hands heartily with us. My uncle thanked him warmly in the Icelandic language for his kind hospitality, speaking truly from the heart. As for myself, I put together a few of my best Latin phrases and paid him the highest compliments I could. This fraternal and friendly duty performed, we sallied forth and mounted our horses. As soon as we were quite ready, M. Fridriksson advanced. By way of farewell, he called after me in the words of Virgil, words which appeared to have been made for us, travelers starting for an uncertain destination. And whichsoever way thou goest, may fortune follow. Chapter 9 Our Start We Meet with Adventures by the Way The weather was overcast but settled when we commenced our adventurous and perilous journey. We had neither to fear fatiguing heat nor drenching rain 
It was, in fact, real tourist weather. As there was nothing I liked better than horse exercise, the pleasure of riding through an unknown country caused the early part of our enterprise to be particularly agreeable to me. I began to enjoy the exhilarating delight of traveling, a life of desire, gratification, and liberty. The truth is, my spirits rose so rapidly that I began to be indifferent to what had once appeared to be a terrible journey. After all, I said to myself, what do I risk? Simply to take a journey through a curious country, to climb a remarkable mountain, and if the worst comes to the worst, to descend into the crater of an extinct volcano. There could be no doubt that this was all this terrible Sack Newsom had done. As to the existence of a gallery or of subterraneous passages leading to the interior of the earth, the idea was simply absurd, the hallucination of a distempered imagination. All, then, that may be required of me, I will do cheerfully, and I will create no difficulty. It was just before we left Reykjavik that I came to this decision. Hans, our extraordinary guide, went first, walking with a steady, rapid, unvarying step. Our two horses with the luggage followed of their own accord, without requiring encouragement. My uncle and I came behind, cutting a very tolerable figure upon our small but vigorous animals. Iceland is one of the largest islands in Europe. It contains 30,000 square miles of surface and has about 70,000 inhabitants. Geographers have divided it into four parts and we had to cross the southwest quarter. Hans, on taking his departure from Reykjavik, had followed the line of the sea we took our way through the poor and sparse meadows, which made a desperate effort every year to show a little green. They very rarely succeed in a good show of yellow. The rugged summits of the rocky hills were dimly visible on the edge of the horizon through the misty fogs. Every now and then, some heavy flakes of snow showed conspicuous in the morning light. While certain lofty and pointed rocks were first lost in the grey, low clouds, their summits were clearly visible above, like jagged reefs rising from a troublous sea. Every now and then, a spur of rock came down through the arid ground, leaving us scarcely room to pass. Our horses, however, appeared not only well acquainted with the country, but by a kind of instinct, knew which was the best road. It was utterly useless to show any signs of impatience. 
I could not help smiling to see my uncle look so big on his little horse, his long legs now and then touching the ground, making him look like a six-footed centaur. Good beast, good beast, he would say. I assure you that I begin to think no animal is more intelligent than an Icelandic horse. Snow, tempest, rocks, icebergs, nothing stops him. He is brave, he is sober, he is safe. He never makes a false step, never glides or slips from his path. I dare to say that if any river or any fjord has to be crossed, and I have no doubt there will be many, you will see him enter the water without hesitation, like an amphibious animal, and reach the opposite side in safety. We must not, however, attempt to hurry him. We must allow him to have his own way, and I will undertake to say that between us, we shall do our ten leagues in a day. We may do so, was my reply. But what about our worthy guide? I have not the slightest anxiety about him, said my uncle. That sort of people go ahead without knowing even what they're about. Look at Hans. He moves so little that it is impossible for him to become fatigued. Besides, if he were to complain of weariness, he could have the loan of my horse. I should have a violent attack of the cramp if I were not given some sort of exercise. My arms are right, but my legs are getting a little bit stiff. All this while we were advancing at a rapid pace. The country we had reached was already nearly a desert, Here and there could be seen an isolated farm, some solitary burr or Icelandic house built of wood, earth, and fragments of lava. In this country there are no roads, paths are nearly unknown, and vegetation, poor as it was, slowly as it reached perfection, soon obliterated all traces of the few travellers who had passed from place to place. Nevertheless, this division of the province, situated only a few miles from the capital, is considered one of the best cultivated and most thickly peopled in all Iceland. What then must be the state of the less known and more distant parts of the island. After traveling fully half a Danish mile, we had met neither a farmer at the door of his hut, nor even a wandering shepherd with his wild flock. A few stray cows and sheep were only seen occasionally. What then must we expect when we come to the upheaved regions, to the districts broken and roughened from volcanic eruptions and subterraneous commotions. We were to learn this all in good time.
I saw, however, on consulting the map, that we avoided a good deal of this rough country by following the winding and desolate shores of the sea. In reality, the great volcanic movement of the island and all its attendant phenomena are concentrated in the interior of the island. There, horizontal layers or strata of rocks piled one upon the other. Eruptions of basaltic origin and streams of lava have given this country a kind of supernatural reputation. Little did I expect, however, the spectacle which awaited us when we reached the peninsula of Snaefels, where agglomerations of nature's ruins form a kind of terrible chaos. <laughs>